0: You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net.
1: What's up, President Nate? We are rolling in this series that we're exploring what it looks like to really have healthy relationships, really what it looks like to have connected friendships. And so last week we talked about um, this reality that we need friends, that like we deeply need that kind of community. And there's a huge difference between good friends and gospel friends. Like there's just this massive difference between what it looks like to be a good friend, and to be able to take the step into really what it looks like to be in Christian friendship and gospel friendship, and so that's great, but what happens, here's the question, what happens when there's tension? What happens when there's conflict? What happens when it doesn't go well? How do we begin to respond? What does it begin to look like when we begin to walk into moments where everything's not hunky-dory? I remember going to college. I was in a high school and there' was a couple of people that were going from my high school to the college that I ended up going and so I remember reaching out to one of those one of these people didn't know him really well, but um, knew that he didn't know anybody there and so I thought hey let's let's be roommates, and so we decided that we we're going to be roommates for our freshman year. So again, didn't know each other really well. We moved into uh, this dorm room, and in that um, man, I remember there was this time where uh, at the end of the at the end of the first semester, I was going to this uh, this Christmas party, and this Christmas party was one of those parties that had. Like a white elephant gift exchange have you ever done that done that thing where you basically take your junk and and you wrap it up like it's really cool and you begin to exchange it um, and so it happened that, um, that I forgot that this was a white elephant gift exchange party. And so I'm like, it's, it's immediately before the party and I'm panicking. I don't know if you've ever had that moment and you look around and say, what can I bring? What junk do I have that I can bring that can wrap up and look nice and pretend like it was all a part of like my ultimate plan, right? And so I, I look around and it's a dorm room, right? I don't have anything that I'm not using. I don't have anything that you know, is unneeded. And so, uh, so I look around and on the shelf, up above, um, uh, kind of on this, uh, up above uh, our desk, there was this box. And it, in this box was this um, Snoopy stuffed animal. This snoo- and so it was, it was in the packaging, and I thought, perfect. I'm going to take this. Now, one detail you need to know is it wasn't mine. This one was not my doll. This was not my stuffed Snoopy animal. But I thought, this is going to be perfect. I'm going to take this, and uh, I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to bring it, and then I'm going to go to the store immediately afterwards. I'm going to purchase another one, and I'm going to put it back on the shelf. And nothing's going to happen with that, right? And of course, the reason I'm telling you this is because it didn't work all out out exactly the way I wanted. So I take it, I wrap it up, I bring it that night, and it begins to be, you know, that that kind of the game where you pass it around and there's steals and then after a few steals like it gets locked and no one can steal it anymore. But the first person who takes and opens up my gift um, opens this thing up and somehow knew the fact is as they opened it up that this was like a limited edition Snoopy doll. And, um, and, and I was like, I, oh no, oh no. Like, and so I had two simultaneous thoughts, one, how do I begin to manipulate this situation in order to get this thing back into my possession? How do I begin to bribe people and how do I begin to make sure that I go home with this gift without anyone knowing that that's my ulterior plan? And then my other thing was like, dude, why did you bring a stuffed Snoopy doll to college? Like we have 120 square feet of space you're a grown man, why did you bring a Snoopy doll? Like, what was going on with that decision? How did that make sense in your mind? Simultaneously, right? And so it works out that evening that I begin to manipulate that situation, and begin to say, hey, whatever, whatever it takes, would you please pick, would you steal the Snoopy doll, right? And so it ultimately gets back to a friend of mine and I ultimately take and bring the Snoopy, ball, Snoopy doll, put it back into the, uh, into the box and, and put it back on the shelf. However, my roommate finds out and he finds out that no longer is this an unopened Snoopy doll, limited edition thing, that it has been opened and it has now lost some value. And so tension in the dorm room, right? Um, there's this moment where he's like, what were you thinking to take my limited edition Snoopy stuffed animal to your party as if it were yours? And so um, there was this, this moment, right? We are, it is the very middle of our first year together. And um, and I can't like piece out and say, we got a whole nother semester. And so it was this fascinating experience of being able to figure out what does it look like to actually have to work through conflict? What does it look like to actually have to take and try to figure out how do we reconcile this? How do we begin to move towards each other in this this reality? And so in that process, man, it was the first time in my life I actually had to like move through conflict. And I ended up spending a total, a year and a half with this guy as a roommate. And um, and, and it was a fascinating reality to be, go, to be able to figure out, hey, what does it look like to have conflict and then to move on and to be able to continue a relationship with, with the people around you? And so the truth is, as we begin to think about this and as, and as we begin to process it, I need us to all kind of come to the conclusion that in close, long-term friendships, there will be conflict, Now, I know that some of you guys are just like, ah, I don't want to hear that because I'm a conflict avoider. And some of you like are serial conflict avoiders. And this is this reality that we are different kinds of people. And one of the reasons that there's conflict is because we're not all vanilla, the same kind of people, right? That your personality is different, that your background is different. You have different norms. There's different expectations that you have. And you bring those into every relationship that you have. But they're most seen in long-term relationships. The other thing is this, is that you and I are both just sinful people. There's some things that we do, there's some times that we do things that are just about us, and they're selfish, and they're oriented around our desires and our needs and all of that stuff, and we just say, this is just what I want to do, and we're sinful, selfish people, right? So if we're different, if we're sinful, it both leads to conflict, and these are inevitable for us. But I need us to understand that healthy conflict is the mark of close relationships. Healthy conflict is the mark of close relationships. So we don't need to flee it. We don't need to say, man, whatever it takes, I just don't wanna have conflict. That, that just makes it awkward and makes it weird. But for us to understand healthy conflict, it's the mark of close relationships. Last week we talked about the reality that as a generation, um, there's a st- we statistically have less close friends on average than previous generations. That Your grandparents and your parents probably had more close friends than you have, at least statistically. But one of the biggest issues that has been identified by researchers, way smarter than me, is that younger generations struggle to navigate conflict. That as we get younger, we're struggling to navigate conflict. And what happens as we struggle to navigate conflict, and I'm not going to go into the reasons behind that, but there's all kinds of research that's saying, hey, here's why we're struggling to navigate con- uh, conflict, but it's just real. We're struggling to have the, the, the understanding and the tools to be able to navigate conflict. But here's what happens when we begin to struggle to navigate conflict, what ends up happening is that it turns our, our relationships into disposable friendships that our lack of capacity to navigate conflict creates disposable friendships. And it's not something that you're intending to happen. It's not something that you want to have happen. But what happens is that we begin to have these these moments where we're moving through this and we're moving through these realities and you begin to have this moment where where it ends up being disposable friendships. And here's what it looks like. A disposable relationship is a relationship that grows close until the threshold of conflict until, until the threshold of conflicts and begins to grow cold. So, what happens is this there begins to be this moment where you grow together, you grow in, in closeness to this friendship or this relationship, but then conflict happens, and then all of a sudden it begins to say, okay, then we begin to grow cold. And this is pervasive. One of the things I believe is that disposable relationships are are a symptom of a greater sense of our struggle for redemption across our society. That when we see people that send tweets or, or make statements that are mistakes, that are a reflection of their sinfulness, we have this place where it's like, we just end it. We cancel. No longer can you be a part of this. And this idea of a culture has seeped into our understanding of friendships. And so we get to this place where conflict happens and it's canceled. And we don't grow in reconciliation. We don't grow in this. And what happens is that disposable friendships plus time over time equals isolation. It equals isolation. When we begin to have struggles to conflict, and we begin to get to the point of conflict, and then we can't get through it, we can't get over the hump, or we begin to say we're not gonna actually process this, over time what happens is you become isolated. And I need us to go back to the same truth that we talked about last week, that isolation is the enemy. Isolation is the enemy. I want you to say that with me, one, two, three. Isolation is the enemy. I want, I, you, there wasn't enough conviction behind that for this truth. I want us to say it one more time, one, two, three. Isolation is the enemy, that's great. That is incredible because it is so true that when we get isolated, it begins to be these things that we begin to suffer from in a deep, deep kind of way. And so what do we do with this? How do we understand how to move through conflict into reconciliation? The good news is this. The good news is that in, even if conflict is inevitable, And even if we have um, really poor ways to deal with conflict, some of you are sprayers, man, you get into conflict and it just is like igniting, right? And you just bring conflict into into the, and others of you are stuffers, right? Conflict happens and you're like, I don't don't, don't wanna say anything, but it's both real. Both of those things are real. And the great news is the Bible has something to say to us in, in terms of how we navigate and how we have not isolated realities, but connected realities and how we have friendships that ultimately are deeply connective. But it's us being able to understand how to do this. And so what I want us to do, I want to just land a thought, and I want to allow uh, God's word, scripture, to be able to kind of help us to understand how it works. This is this idea that forgiveness is an event that shifts our thinking, and reconciliation is a process that shifts our feelings. That forgiveness is an event that shifts our thinking while reconciliation is a process that shapes our feelings. And this is gonna be really key because as we understand really why we, get, well, we don't get over conflict and why we get caught up, we don't forgive typically because we believe they don't deserve it. That we say, hey, you've taken something from me. Hey, you, there's something from me that, that you don't deserve to be given grace in. You don't deserve to be given forgiveness. And so we believe that that is why we withhold these things, and we can't get past the moments of conflict. And the other part of this is that rec- we don't reconcile because we don't feel like it. And this is a big one. This is it really real, resonate, because what happens is this, is we get into places of conflict, and we're like, no, everything within me, and we've been raised to chase after our desires. We've been raised into follow whatever you feel. And so what happens is we follow what it feels and it ends up in isolation. We follow the feelings of, of anger and hurt. And what it brings us to is places where there's no one else in our life. We cannot trust our feelings every single time. And so here's what we begin to do. We begin to look at scripture to be able to help us to navigate how this happens. And so we go to a place and there's this guy named Paul and Paul writes a letter to an expanding church, a church that is planting churches that is overtaking really all of Asia Minor. And it's a place called Ephesus. And he writes a letter to the people of Ephesus. It's called Ephesians. And in chapter four, he begins to help them to understand how they're to navigate conflict and what it looks like for them to be connected together. In verse 31, it says this, it says really clearly, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. I love that brawling is in here. Like, it's not just talking. It's like fisticuffs, right? Like, they're going at, at it. And, and then it's like connected with slander. And, and so I just love brawling. Like, who says, hey, you need to get rid of the brawling? Like, that's just, we can't have that. This is get rid of that stuff. And then it says this, be kind and compassion to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. And this is this is huge. As we begin to understand this, forgiveness is this idea of I'm not gonna hold this over your head. What has been done uh, is has been addressed and forgiven and I release the anger and bitterness and forgiveness is the choice to think differently about someone, to extend them grace. And forgiveness cannot be dependent upon whatever hurt you feel. To be able to say, hey, if it's a really big, thing, then I'm going to withhold the forgiveness until you earn it, until you figure out how you reckon or or how you redeem this thing, right? We begin to say, okay, if it's a small thing or a big thing that we begin to say, hey, we are to get rid of it, right? To get rid of these kind of things and operate through this understanding of forgiveness. It cannot be dependent on if the other person deserves it. It is a grace gift. And for us to be able to think through this and for us to be able to think through what it looks like, we have to understand in, in this how to know who to even forgive, and I don't know if you're like me, but um, when I begin to understand who is these, who is it that, that I need to begin to operate towards, towards with forgiveness? It's the people that, that I begin to have conversations with in my head where I'm always the winner. Where I'm always the person who uh, comes out on top and I play these things in my mind and it's like at the end it's like you have an excellent point Keith. Man, you make some really strong argumentation right there. I was absolutely wrong, right? And so this is what's all going on in my head. And when I've had a couple of those, I begin to say, hey, there's something going on in here. There's something that I begin to understand that, that, man, I'm carrying something. I'm carrying bitterness, hurt of some sort. And I begin to, I, I need to begin to explore what it means to operate in this forgiveness. But the key is that as we operate this, the only reasoning behind this, because it's not fair, it doesn't make any sense that we would release somebody from what they've done to hurt us, but for us to be able to understand the reason is this. that is it, is, it comes in this idea of just as in Christ, God forgave you. That the reason that you begin to operate towards someone with this idea of forgiveness is this idea that in Christ, God forgave you. So then you can begin to say, I choose to forgive. And you can insert their name into this place. Blank, no longer owes me anything. This is the thing, that you are owed something, right? And so because you were owed something, you are owed, um, you, you are owed a reconciliation, you're owed some sort of a circumstance that, that they should make right. But this is the logical event that has to happen. And I need for us to understand that forgiveness needs to be an event that affects our thinking. And how does it affect our thinking? It's, it's a logical reason for you to forgive not because they deserve it or because they've done anything to earn it. It's because God sent Jesus to this earth to pay the penalty for your sin and to give a gift of grace to you that you don't deserve. And he absorbed the consequences of sin, which is eternal death. And so in this, what happens is we begin to say, hey, because the reality is that God has operated towards me like this this is what provokes my forgiveness that the as I begin to understand here's what God did for me and that begins to point out from me how I logically get to a place where I say I have to forgive them I have to take this vertical reality and bend it horizontally and this is key for us Because we have to understand that in this place, for us to get to a place where we, we say to them, I choose to forgive, they no longer owe me anything. It's an understanding that the motivation, that the logic, that the event that happened was the cross. And because of the cross, we now cannot go to a place where people owe us anything because we have been redeemed, we have been forgiven, that God doesn't say to us, man, if you're good enough, if you do enough stuff, man, that's enabling you to be able to get my forgiveness. But because free forgiveness was a free gift, then we operate it like this as well. We operate as giving forgiveness as a free gift. And so here's what we begin to get into. So what happens with this? How do I begin to understand this? Because, Keith, frankly, there's moments where I don't want to forgive the hard part about this is that cognitively I can understand, hey, this is what Jesus did for me, but in the moment, man, all I want to do is attack them. All I want to do is justify myself to defend how I've been wrong, to be able to say this is not right. So how is it that I begin to operate in a way that affects my heart? What we need to know is that forgiveness is an event, but reconciliation is is a process. And so here's what Jesus says. So Jesus is helping uh, a group of guys to be able to understand hey, this is how you begin to live towards each other and he begins to help them to understand here's how the gospel fits. In verse 21 of Matthew chapter five he says this, you've heard it said that to people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And that word is just really a a word of contempt towards other people. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, this is is a crazy thing. We understand the clarity of the, the normal idea that to kill somebody is wrong. That that is a moral, societal no-no, right? That we don't do that. And yet, here's what Jesus does. He takes the idea of murder, and he begins to tie that same thing to anger and contempt towards other people. And here's what's just, here's what's crazy, right? He begins to say, hey, if you operate like this, you're in danger of hell. Why would Jesus say this? Why would this make sense at all? Because that doesn't seem like it's coherent at all. Here's what he's saying, that if you understand the gospel, if you understand what what is happening in the gospel and you still have this understanding of how you interact towards your brother or sister in Christ and Christian friendship, then maybe you actually don't understand the gospel. Maybe you don't actually understand what's going on and this is, this, is a, this is a crazy idea that we begin to see and we begin to operate out of that we begin to say, if you don't understand this idea of the gospel, then maybe you don't understand God. Maybe you don't understand um, this, this moment of, uh, of what it means to walk in grace. And he goes on and says this, therefore, and so here's the action step, here's what we begin to say all this is kind of pointing to. If you are offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So this, this is so powerful because here's what Jesus does. He paints a picture of what it's like for someone to have traveled maybe days to come to the temple and then wait in lines to be able to exchange their money to be able to get a gift that they would then sacrifice on the altar and then wait in more lines for them to be able to ultimately get to the altar. And then he's saying, if all of this, if you've gone days and waited in lines and gotten into this place, go and leave your gift there and go be reconciled to someone. Now, if someone's hearing this, they're like, oh my gosh, that's That's crazy talk, but here's how important this is, that Jesus begins to help us to understand how crucial it is that we begin to operate towards others in reconciliation, that we begin to say, okay, what does it look like for us to resolve conflict in terms of our earthly relationships? that this is a massive deal. He said this, that you would leave your gift there, that you would stop the whole process, even in that moment, and to be able to go back and say, hey, it's this important, that we begin to see this, and this idea of first go. You're all doing this before you get to this place. First you need to go. And so for Resonate, for us to be able to understand as a generation struggling with conflict, and as a heavenly father speaking to us, and as Jesus telling us, that as we enter into even acts of worship, and we don't understand the effects of our conflict with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with our relationships, and this is packed full of so much truth, that we need to stop in these moments and to be able to say this is so important that I need to shut this whole thing down and make a phone call. I need to shut this whole thing down and go find this person that there's, there's a conflict with, that there's, there's some sort of a, a miss with, there's some sort of a place, and I need to initiate an action of reconciliation. I need to be able to move towards them. This is what we need in our society. This is what we need in our church. People who have the guts and the courage to take Jesus at his word and to be able to take and move towards others and to be able to resolve the conflict. And I want you, to, every single one of you, you have conflict somewhere. Low grade, high grade, maybe it's overwhelming, but you can probably have something in your mind that you can begin to say, hey, I understand what this means and understand the motivation and the struggle to ultimately do this. First, go and be reconciled. Reconciliation, reconciled, is a process word. It is the word of saying, hey, forgiveness is an event that has to do with what you're understanding of in terms of Jesus. Reconciliation is the process of being able to say over and over, we need to be able to move towards people and to begin to say, here's what it looks like. It's a process where the root of this word reconciliation is this idea of exchange, where we we take and we unload hurt. And what we begin to see is a grudge is the unwillingness to unload our hurt, and you can't hold both a grudge and the gospel at the same time. You can't hold the grudge and the gospel at the same time, but reconciliation is the process of prying our fingers from our hurt and exchanging it for moments of correction. It's going back over and over and over until there's healing, until there's reconnection. And here's this myth that I think, that I've said really over and over in our church, is that this is what often happens, is that we reconcile to a point, but we don't do it all the way, because here's what happens. We reconcile, we go and we move towards connection until there's a place where our emotions have kind of normalized, where our emotions have kind of subsided, where our emotions have kind of gotten to a place where like, man, I'm okay now. I don't feel as, as heightened. I don't feel as activated in this kind of way. And we begin to take, and we don't get it to a place of reconnection. We just get it to a place where we're just not thinking about it all the time. And in this, it is the lie that keeps us from real friendships. Let me give you kind of an illustration of this. We all get mail. And um, with, with our mail, sometimes we take and we put that on the counter and you begin to have mail, and it's there, and, and, and as you begin to you know, operate in the kitchen or wherever you put your mail or on, on, in some sort of place when you walk by it, but it's, it's there, it's, you can see it, it's out in the open. And sometimes we take our mail, and we file it away, we put it into places where we're like, hey, um, I don't want this to be out, but I want to be able to keep this. I want to have a place where I can go back to it, and I know where it is. And so we put that into a place uh, of filing but then there's moments that we take and we we take our mail and we shred it and we shred it and then we ultimately you know healthily we take and we we throw that out right we throw out all this paper it's no longer good it's no longer something that's even makes any sense anymore in conflict we do the same thing in conflict there's mo there's moments where that conflict is open it's we, we keep it available to us we're walking by it we're navigating in our life but it's it's open to see it's open to experience it's there it's like the mail on the counter then sometimes we get to a place and we take the mail off the counter we take the hurt off the counter and we file it away and when we file it away here's what happens it's not that it's gone It's something we can return to. We know where it's at, and we can pull it out. And sometimes we want to pull it out in moments where we want to go back to it. We want to go back to this place to be able to say, hey, at certain moments, I need to say, hey, this is what you did. You came back and did did this, and I want to return to this thing. And we know where it is, and it's not gone. It's just not out in the open. And I would say that we have to understand that as people who understand the gospel— We need to, instead of filing it away, we need to be people that shred it. We need to be people that put the conflict in the shredder. We need to be people that put the conflict and say, hey, no more. This is unrecognizable. This is not something I'm gonna harbor. This is not something that I'm gonna keep in there. I'm gonna take and put conflict into a place where it's not just filed away, but it's dealt with specifically. And so as we look at this, forgiveness takes what Jesus did and puts it into my head. But reconciliation takes what was in my head and puts it in my heart. Resonate? We need both. We need the clarity of knowing how our forgiveness fits into our life in terms of being an event that changes our thinking, but we also need to be able to move towards others in an understanding of reconciliation and how it actually begins to actually change the very feelings that we operate out of. And to be able to give you more clarity on what this looks like and begin to understand how we practically move to this, I want to let your site pastors be able to take this and be able to help us navigate this.
0: Keith's taller than me and puts his stand on the wrong side. Uh, The other side, I don't want to conflict about that, but... um, so what he said theoretically. How, how do we make this something that's practical? Uh, how does it come into our lives and make make sense to us? Um, I think oftentimes this is hard because we don't want to enter into the space. We actually think the absence of conflict means the presence of health, and it's it's just not true. The absence of conflict uh, does not mean the presence of health. We we see this in premarital counseling all the time, where you know people come in and they're like, "We don't fight. We never fight." And I'm like, I'm worried about you guys they think they're impressing us. Like we don't, we don't have conflict. And it's like, yeah, you also don't have health. And so as we get into thinking through, uh, what this looks like, uh, we have to, we have to look at a couple of things just going on in our own life and also into the life of Jesus and see how this works out. So, uh, about four years ago, the Discovery Channel put out a, a series called the Bible mini-series. How many of you have seen the Bible mini-series? And so it tries to cover the scope of the whole Bible through these shows. It's, it's really good. You can watch it on Netflix. And uh, about episode four, it gets to Jesus. And, and I think I had seen this before, maybe thought about this before, but I would never really uh, realized the, the extent of this. Uh, But Jesus is, uh, he's showing up on the scene and right away you recognize something. When he shows up, uh, the Jewish people had expectations of him. They wanted him to act a certain way, speak a certain way, heal on these days and not those days, include these people and not those people. And they had a whole list of things that Jesus was supposed to do, but he didn't do. And this brought great conflict in the gospel story. And you see this right away, like early on in the book of Mark, uh, Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath and these three guys bring their friend who is uh, paralyzed, and they bring him in and there's this, you know, massive group around and the religious leaders are there. The disciples are there. Other people are listening uh, and they bring this guy up and Jesus looks down at him and he, he like kneels down in the, in the, in the movie. And, uh, and I always knew conflict was there, was there, but seeing it in, in film fashion was, was really profound. And so Jesus kneels down and he tells this guy, he's like, uh, man, your, your faith has, has healed you. Your sins are forgiven. That's what Jesus tells this guy. And the religious leaders on the side, they 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 hear this and they just jump in, and one of them yells out, "Blasphemy! Who can forgive sins but God alone?" And that's what they yell out. <laughs> it doesn't say this in, in in the Bible, but in the in the story, like at the word blasphemy, which is a major accusation. Like some of the disciples, like stand up and start walking towards these religious leaders. It's like it's like a college football game, like against the Huskies, and it's like about to go down, right? And you're like. You're, you're, you never think to yourself like these guys are fishermen. They just recently became followers of Jesus. So they might still be operating under this world of like, hey, if you talk about my boy, I will cut you. And so that, that was their natural instinct of like, they didn't been Christians very long. And so they're like conflict all over the place. Um, I don't know if you have a friend that's like recently converted to Christ and they're like not, they're like with rough edges. And so you're not always sure about them. Uh, we went to Oregon for an event years ago and we made a fire on the beach because uh, you can do that in Oregon. And we were hanging out on the beach and like these, this sounds judgy, but just go with me like these drifter people like showed up. Just picture what you want. And it seemed a little sketchy, possibly. And one of my friends was there who had just come to Christ. He just leaned over and he's like, don't worry, my knife is open and ready. And you're like, why do you have a knife? Why is it open and ready? It's okay, man. His instinct was, you got to look out for these guys. No knives were used. Everything was fine. It was great. Very calm drifters that night. Um, so, so there's tension in the story where the disciples like go and confront the religious leaders. And Jesus doesn't pay attention to any of it. He stays down with the guy and he's, he says this. He says, what's easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk. And so he just tells the guy, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and he's healed. And these religious leaders, they don't put together the fact that he is saying that he's God. And he also has the power to show that he's God. So this conflict, it stays in the story. And these religious leaders don't like meet up with Jesus afterwards and go, Hey man, sorry about that awkward moment. And Peter's not like, Hey, sorry. I almost like punched you. Like, sorry about that. Like they, they don't reconcile. It it just stays full of tension. You know, later in the story, Peter does cut a guy's ear off. Like it, he gets his chance. He misses the head, hits the ear. Good consolation prize. Jesus heals the guy's ear, ear like instantaneously but more conflict. And so you, you get to a place in the story where it it really crescendos uh, in the trial of Jesus, where he's falsely accused. He's wrongly tried. He's ultimately condemned to die as a criminal. And the crescendo of the story is him on the cross. And he's, he's, he's in the cross, taking the punishment for the religious leaders, for the Roman empire, uh, putting their power on him. And that's, that's what it seems like is happening. And then on the cross, he says a couple of things that are just profound, uh, and, and I think they can help motivate us to enter into this space of conflict. One of the things he says is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so on the cross, he's been betrayed. He's been beat. He's been hurt. He, he's been crucified. And he is willing in that moment to say, God, God forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then secondarily, uh, he, he says, it is finished. And you ask, well, what's finished in this story? Uh, well, here's what's finished. Um, your conflict with God is now finished. And I know this may not seem like the most motivating thing, but if you get into this, you realize um, the truth is you have conflict with God. That's not good news. You have a lot of conflict with God. You have major unforgivable, insurmountable, on your own, not going to make peace, unreconcilable conflict with God. You have wronged him. You owe him. You have not honored him. You have doubted him, whether passively or actively you have greatly and gravely sinned against God. And there can be no peace unless God instituted the peace. God initiated the peace and he offered you forgiveness on his side unless someone was at peace with God and they in turn offered you their position of peace because you on your own can't work for it, you can't earn it, you can't be good enough for it, you can't do enough good that way you're bad and they're like, oh, now God, I have peace with you. No, no, no. You had great conflict with God and that has been exchanged. In Christ, Christ took your conflict and offers you his peace. So if you're a believer here today, there's been an exchange that's happened. And that exchange is such a big deal that it can motivate this conversation we're having. That, that, that understanding of the gospel that I used to be in conflict with God, I used to be God's enemy. And while I was his enemy, he sent forth Christ, the peacemaker, to then give me the peace that he had earned, not I had earned, and give me that. And that transforms my identity, my security, my tone of voice, my approachability, my empathy. Everything about me has changed because I'm no longer at odds with God. I am at peace with God. So you got to catch this. Because the greatest conflict in your life has been resolved, you can enter into conflict because the greatest conflict in your whole life has been resolved. You have identity, you have security, you have the ability to enter into the hard space of conflict. You don't have to avoid it. You don't have to walk around trying to prove, uh, you know, get everyone's approval. You can enter into that hard space, why? Because you're at peace in a soul level with your God. Therefore, conflict won't crush you. It won't be hard for you. You can move into this space. And how do we practically move in? There's a couple things. Now that we're at peace, now that we have security, now that we have identity, we can move in with, with caution and with kindness. We don't have to come in hot. We can, we can come in cautiously and kindly. And, and so there's a couple things I want to just really practically ask you to do when you think about conflict, besides this understanding of the gospel. Ask yourself the question, when do I need to speak up? And when do I need to listen? When do I need to speak up? And when do I need to listen? So as, as I'm entering into conflict, are there moments where I am just not moving in conflict because I'm afraid or I don't want to deal and I just get overwhelmed by the, the idea of conflict and so I never speak up. And so just just lovingly, like there are many of you in the room that need to speak up, but you may not know how. So I want to really practically give you a tool on how, when you do speak up, how do you speak up when you do? Uh, there's lots of ways. My wife's favorite word is "Hey, can I give you some feedback?" And when I when she hears when she says to me "Hey, can I give you some feedback?" I'm like, "Okay, here comes the conflict, right?" But but she's saying it in a way that's kind. She's being cautious to me. She even like corrected my sermon this morning, like the way I preach. She's like, "Hey, can I give you some feedback?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, of course." And she's like, "I need to give you some feedback on how you receive feedback after this feedback." Okay, and I'm like, "That's rude." Okay, so. We're walking through it. She's, she's a gift of God to me, a treasure of God to me. Uh, and so she'll say something like that, like, can I give you some feedback? And that's so helpful to me. I'm like, yeah, actually you can. And so that helps me understand, hey, we're about to move into a space that might be uh, misunderstanding or might need some clarity. Uh, but, but the really practical thing I want to say is when you're going to speak up to someone, say this, you're, you're talking to someone you have uh, misunderstanding with. You say, when you do blank, it makes me feel blank. When you do blank, it makes me feel blank. And so when you act this way, do act this way, say this thing, uh, when, when I'm talking and you ignore me or you're looking at your phone when I'm talking to you, it makes me feel like I'm not important to you. Um, hey, when, when I invite you to stuff, and you don't respond, it makes me feel like you're not interested in our friendship. Or, hey, when I see that you're hanging out with everyone else except for me, that, that makes me feel like uh, I'm, I'm not a person you want in your life. And so uh, that word feel is significant. What are some things you feel, some fears you have? You're vulnerable in that moment, but you're moving in and you're speaking up. And you don't have to be fired up when you say it. You don't have to be mad. You can just say, hey, this is something that's going on and I want to speak to it. Because if I don't, I'm going to be arguing with you tonight in my bed and I'm going to destroy you in my argument. That, that's not healthy. That's not unified. That's not getting us there. And so what if you just humbly, calmly, because your identity's secure and you, you know who you are in Christ, you come to someone, you say, hey, when you do this, I feel this. And you try to operate towards understanding. And ultimately, when it's beautiful and it's perfect, both of you walk away having grown in Christ, grown in each other, and it's just profound. So when do I need to speak up and when do I need to listen when do I need to listen? When, when someone comes to me and says something, like, do I have a posture of humility? Can I drop my pride? Can I say, man, I need to hear that? Um, and I, I heard this quote uh, years ago, and it's really affected me. It says, armed with enough humility, uh, we can learn from anyone. Armed with enough humility, we can learn from anyone. Like, if someone has a reproach for us, we, we can be learners in that place. So do we need to listen? How approachable are you? How how often are you actively listening? Or when someone's talking to you, you just wait until they're done so that you can give them some feedback. Thank you for bringing up feedback. It's my turn to give you feedback. Are you done with my feedbacks? So I'd like to give you some feedback. That's not listening. That's that's escalating. And so uh, my wife and I, I have two rules in, in in our family that I'm really working to break. And here's where she gave me some correction this morning. Uh, she, I, I've told her I've made two promises to her. I don't I don't keep them as much as I want, but I've told her one. I'll never speak a harsh word to her, and I'll never escalate an argument. And so when I speak a harsh word, she can say, Josh, that's a harsh word, and that's like, that's like safety word for me knowing, hey, calm down, bro. You made a promise to her. And so if I'm being harsh, she goes, harsh word, I'm like, oh, code word, sorry, babe. Or if, if we go into a fight, and I have a personality that kind of enjoys conflict a little, Jesus is redeeming that, it's going great. Uh, <laughs> but like, we, we walk in, and you know, and she can say to me, hey, you're escalating. I'm like, am I, you know, yeah, oh, okay, I am. Sorry, babe, thank you, good, great. So, so moving into that space, and when you do this, I feel this, and, and I wanna listen, and I wanna hear what you have to say. Uh, but listen, in both cases, here's the key, in both cases, whether you're speaking up or listening, ask yourself this, where do I need to die to myself in order to have healthy conflict? Where do I need to die to myself? This is the command of Christ. You take up your cross and you follow me and you die to yourself. So where do I need to die to myself? Do I need to die to my pride? Do I need to die to my approval issues? Do I need to die to my fear? Where do I need to die so that we can have a healthy conflict moving forward? Because listen, the Bible's clear. As much as it is up to you, the Bible says, be at peace with everyone. Now there are some people you can never be at peace with because they have decided they're not gonna be at peace with you and that's their business. But as much as it's up to you, be at peace with everyone. Speak up when you need to. Be humble and listen when you need to. Be at peace with everyone. Walk towards conflict knowing, hey, I'm gonna to die to myself And I want both of us to grow when we're done with this and you'll get to experience the profound security in the gospel. If you don't have the gospel security, you're going to be very insecure in conflict and it could crush you. It can make you believe lies. It can make you ruin relationships, cancel whole groups of people from your life and it's going to hurt. And so listen, just really personally as a guy who's growing in this, as a guy who's learned, as a guy who has hurt a lot of people, um, Man, I want to grow in healthy conflict. I want to grow in kindness. I want to grow in approachability because those things are Christ-like. I don't care what my Myers-Briggs personality profile says or my Enneagram calls me the challenger. I I don't care about any of that stuff. I care about being Christ-like. And those things don't define you. Christ does. Well, Josh, I'm a two. I don't like this. No, you're a Christian. And Jesus is Lord over your conflict. So stop identifying in things that aren't actually helping you. So this week, I want you to take a look at your personality this week. And I'm sure you're familiar with all these tests and whatever, and go read about yourself. And then this is gonna get a little weird on you. You tell that stuff, it's not true in Christ. In Christ, you can operate differently. In Christ, you can move forward in some stuff. So do some soul searching and and just say over yourself, In Christ, that's not going to be true of me anymore. Uh, I'm going to move out of that stuff and be more like Jesus. And the more you can move towards Jesus, the more you're going to move towards healthy conflict. So just really, just really practically this week, do some introspection. And then secondarily, make a list of people in your life that you've been arguing with in your head and say, do I need to speak up or do I need to listen? This week, do I need to speak up to that person kindly, graciously, or do I need to listen? Listen. And if you have people in your life, you said, I've tried to make peace with them. They don't want to make peace with me. You just release them and you say, God, I'm going to release them. I'm not going to be bitter. I'm just going to release them as much as it's up to me. I'm going to live at peace with everyone, but apparently it's not up to me in that case. So I'm going to release them. And by God's grace, we'll experience a profound spirit of unity in our midst and the gospel will grow in our hearts and it will be good. And so I hope that this has been impactful for you. I want to pray that we'd be these kind of people, that Jesus would be Lord of our conflict and we'd walk towards him as we move forward. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for the gift of the gospel. God, we're thankful for the gift you give us in Christ that that we have security now, that we don't have to be afraid of conflicts. God, we don't have to be afraid of what our personalities say about how we deal. Um, God, God, we've been born again. We've been given a new heart and we have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. So I pray God that you would affect us and God, you change us. You would help us be the kind of people in this room who operate in unity in the body of Christ, who operate in maturity in relationships and who are willing to have secure identity oriented conflict conversations. So father, help us in that. And God, now as we worship you, I I pray that we'd be the kind of people that worship in confidence because we're no longer your enemies. But God, if we're here tonight and we we don't feel like we're at conflict with, uh, you know, at peace with you, God, we're still at conflict with you, I I pray that we would talk to you about that tonight. And maybe even in this moment, we'd have some people that experience the peace that Jesus offers. So God, as we move forward, be among us and be moving. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.